0: You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk.
1: This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. What did it take to get ahead in the Army of the Potomac? A West Point background? Friends in high places? A winning smile? Some rudimentary understanding of basic tactics and strategy, perhaps? We'll find out today what led to the rise and fall of the Army of the Potomac's leaders from Stephen Tafe, author of Commanding the Army of the Potomac. Join us for a conversation with Dr. Tafe on Civil War Talk Radio.
2: Writers Wanted, at the 6th Annual La Jolla Writers' Conference, October 20-22, through 22, 2006, where New York Times bestselling authors, editors, agents, publicists, screenwriters, and poets will help you find your voice and perfect your craft. Get feedback on your work from New York Times bestsellers James Gripondo, Linda Leo Miller, Steve Berry, Margaret Weiss, Catherine Ryan Hyde, and a host of other outstanding authors. Participate in reading critique classes with renowned literary agents and editors and know that you can later submit to them on a first-name basis. Hone your screenwriting skills with Alan Russell and Warren Lewis, the writer of Black Rain, The 13th Warrior, and other movies, and find out what it takes to get your small press book on the shelves of Barnes & Noble with Marcella Smith of their New York office and Jan Nathanson of PMA. Whether you write fiction or nonfiction, whether you're looking to jumpstart your writing career or simply hone your craft, join the unique writing community of the La Jolla Writers Conference October 20th through 22nd. For more information, check us out at LaJollaWritersConference.com or call 858-467-1978. The La Jolla Writers Conference, turning writers into authors and authors into bestsellers.
0: talk radio bringing the world to you to reach a show host or guest during
2: the live show dial toll free in north america 866-613-1612 or if outside the usa and canada dial 001 858-268-3068
1: Jerry Prokopovich, speaking to you from my office on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina, where it's a gray and gloomy pouring rain Friday afternoon in October of 2006. But we will try to lighten things with our discussion of Civil War topics today, Uh, a reminder, as always, that although I'm using my office, I am otherwise not speaking on behalf of East Carolina or the History Department or anyone here, the governor, state senators, legislators, and so on, just me. And all, as always, a reminder that contributions to the, uh, to the program are always welcome to help bring in fresh books and fresh authors one other reminder before we start as mentioned on a a previous show should you be hearing this in the autumn of 2006 please feel free to send in any questions you might have about Abraham Lincoln as a sort of uh, contribution to a book I'm working on titled did Lincoln own slaves questions and answers about Abraham Lincoln which should appear sometime in the, the year 2007 it is based on the kinds of questions people ask about Lincoln, not um, uh, the kinds of questions academics ask necessarily, but the kind that one hears when working at a museum or other public historical site. So if you have questions about Lincoln that you're just curious about or that you think are important and ought to be answered in such a book, please feel free to send me an email. The address is on the website, and I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. Well, let's move on today. Our subject is one of Lincoln's armies, indeed the most prominent of Lincoln's armies, the Army of the Potomac. And our guest is an author who has written a recent book on that subject, uh, Stephen Tafe. Uh, Stephen, are you there? Yeah. Uh, might be there, might not be there. I'm here. Oh, there he is. Uh, very good. Um, am I getting your last name pronounced correctly?
0: Yes, it's Tafe.
1: Tafe, very good. I've I have had people actually mispronounce my last name on occasion, uh, shocking though that may be, and uh, so I, I try not to do that to others when, when possible. Well, thanks for, for joining us here on the program today. Uh, you and I have not met uh, other than me through reading your book, so let me ask you uh, what your interest, what your background is in, in terms of getting interested in this topic
0: Well, I'm a military historian, and I teach at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas. And um, I've done books on other wars, but I wanted to do one on the Civil War. And the other books I did were on campaigns, and the thing that interested me the most about looking at these other campaigns was the people. And I asked myself, why is it that these are the guys who are commanding these armies or these corps or these divisions? And since I wanted to do something on a Civil War, I thought that might be a kind of unique angle to look at why certain people commanded certain corps. And the Army of the Potomac seems to be the best army to look at because it had more trouble than any other Union army.
1: Well, it, it certainly did have that. Did, um, do you teach Civil War topics? Uh, to, do you have Civil War classes?
0: I teach both diplomatic and military history, and I do teach a Civil War reconstruction class.
1: I'm curious. I ask that because here at East Carolina, I teach a Civil War class periodically, and I myself am a carpetbagger born and raised in Michigan, and when I first came to North Carolina, I found that some of the unconscious assumptions I made in my teaching and lecturing about the Civil War that... Played perfectly well in Massachusetts or Indiana or other places I had taught uh, didn't go over as well in the former Confederacy, and I had to really think if I really meant those things or, or, or how I ought to say them. So I'm asking te- teaching to a, a Texas college audience, uh, did, do you notice uh, how, how does that work?
0: Uh, it's not the same. I taught in Tennessee for a number of years, and in Tennessee, they seem to be a lot more gung ho about the Civil War than folks are in Texas. Uh, so I don't have the commitment to states' rights and that sort of thing down here that I had in Tennessee. So it hasn't been that bad. Uh, they can't—I find, in fact, more common ground with the Texans than I could with the Tennesseans.
1: That's interesting. That you know, you've probably heard Kentucky referred to as the, the posthumous member of the Confederacy. Maybe the closer you get to the border, the more fervent the uh, the belief.
0: Well, that might be, uh, but I, I think I'd prefer teaching down in Texas to teaching in Tennessee.
1: Well, so you said you decided to look at the Army of the Potomac, um, which I thought was interesting, partly because in the last 10 years, 15 years in Civil War historiography, there's been a real movement toward looking at the Western theater. And we've seen a lot of books uh, on Sherman, uh, Stephen Woodworth's recent book on the Army of the Tennessee. I wrote a book on the Army of the Ohio. Others have looked at uh, the, the Western generals, the Western campaigns. And there's almost been a, 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 move, a movement away, certainly, from the Virginia campaigns as if they've, they've been done so many times. There's no further point in going over this ground your book marks a return to that uh, to that ground that's been well worked over. W- what what new information or what new approach are we going to get from looking at the Army of the Potomac again?
0: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right about this shift towards the Western theater during the war, which I think is very worthwhile. But when I look at a lot of the Civil War historiography, there certainly is a lot of information about the battles and the campaigns and the high ranking commanders and even some of the Corps commanders, but Nobody, to my knowledge, had done anything on the Corps commanders as a whole, and there are a lot of Corps commanders that even Civil War buffs know almost nothing about. And I thought this, by analyzing this next level down below Field Army Command, it might give us a better idea as to why the Army of the Potomac performed so poorly and why that army had so much trouble compared to other armies.
1: Well, this I'm very interested in this topic. Because I think that's a, that's a really important question, why that army performed poorly. Although, what about the, the counter-argument just to that that approach, which is that all the armies performed poorly, uh, that, that no Civil War army just cuts like a knife through butter against its opponents?
0: Well, that's true. You're absolutely right. All of them have problems. but. The Army of the Potomac always outnumbered the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia usually by about two to one. It's better supplied. It's better equipped. Uh, Yet they lost more battles than they won, whereas, as you know, the Army of the Tennessee, for example, emerged as a victor in every battle of the war. So I think you can say that some armies perform better than others. They might not all have reached the standards you talk about, but some are better than others.
1: And so that that makes the Army of the Potomac definitely a, a question mark. Why did they do as poorly as they did? Well, you approach the subject chronologically. So let let's do it that way. Start at the the top with the first commander, uh, not not including McDowell, uh, George McClellan. The short answer: love him or hate him. Hate him. All right. That that we've, we can move on to the next topic now. No, wait. We'll we'll stop. Um, everybody seems to to, to have no problem answering that question with one or the other. You don't find a lot of neutral people on McClellan. Why is he so polarizing?
0: Uh, I think because he's so hated by so many people because he had so many opportunities to have defeated the enemy and he didn't do it. Uh, He threw away, in my opinion, chance after chance after chance. And so you do have these people who dislike him and I not real sure why people defend him the way they do I'm not saying he's worthless certainly he did do uh, a lot of good things in terms of organizing the army and training the army but it's hard to make the argument that uh, he was a great general in my opinion on the battlefield
1: so in that case what what kept him in there so long
0: well he He does organize the army. He rescues Washington by taking that that unorganized mass of soldiers after first Bull run. Uh, He trains the army. Uh, He's general in chief for a while. And for Lincoln to have fired him in, say, January of 1862, as some radical Republicans were already talking about, would have been a political disaster for him. So better to keep him there and see how he actually does once he gets into a campaign. Of course, he performs poorly uh, on the peninsula and... uh, doesn't do, does a little bit better in Maryland, uh, but I think Lincoln was waiting for the right time when he could remove McClellan without suffering the, with as little political damage as possible.
1: When, one of the things I thought was interesting in your discussion of McClellan in, in the book Commanding the Army of the Potomac was, of course, you, you don't focus just on the, the commanders of the army, but on, on the commanders and one level down, the corps commanders. And the corps commanders in 1862 are not people that, that that the average Civil War enthusiast knows well. I'm, I'm choosing my words. The average person on the street doesn't know who commanded the Army of the Potomac, but if you go one level down, people who study the war could tell you uh, McClellan, Hooker, Meade. You go a level below that, and you can find people who know the corps commanders at Gettysburg. But when you get to those corps commanders in 1862, we're really getting down to some less well-known people. Uh, Talk about those those people.
0: Well, the original four corps commanders in the Army of the Potomac were not chosen by McClellan. Uh, McClellan did not want to organize his army into corps and appoint corps commanders until he had tested the army in battle. His logic is that he wants to know who is most qualified to handle these large units. And on the other hand, a lot of radical Republicans criticize him. They say, look, you can't go into battle until you organize your army into corps. So he dilly-dallies and he won't appoint them. And finally, in March of 1862, Lincoln, on his own, appoints the first four corps commanders and he appoints them on the basis of strict seniority. He takes the top four commanders in the Army of the Potomac, Irvin McDowell, Edwin Sumner, Heinzelman and Erasmus uh, Keyes, and he makes those guys the core commanders. And I think Lincoln did that because that's why he picked these four guys. It's because it was the easiest way to do it. If he had used some other means other than seniority, it would have gotten other officers mad at him, uh, and it would have caused disruption in the Army. So Lincoln just took the path of least resistance and picks the top four commanders, uh, top four commanders in the army of the potomac and make some corps commanders and mcclellan doesn't like that one bit because mcclellan wanted eventually to appoint his own guys as corps commanders and none of these four original corps commanders were real mcclellan allies in fact mcclellan and mcdowell the commander of the first corps didn't get along well at all
1: well that's that's really remarkable if you're running a business or, or middle management in a business and somebody comes along and says here are your four top subordinates uh, or out of your many subordinates, I'll choose your top four for you. Uh, that's not how things are done, as a rule. You, you don't want... If you can't choose your own people, you, you, you're you severely handicapped to begin with. But on the other hand, you said McCollum didn't want to have corps commanders at all, so he was going to just directly command umpteen divisions.
0: Uh, he, yes, he wanted to use divisions until he tested his army in combat at one level or another, and then... Apparently, when he decided these guys are the good ones, now I will separate my army into corps and give it to these four guys or five guys who I have the most faith in.
1: Yeah, well, it, which it sounds like uh, two choices of recipes for disaster. Well, we're going to take a short break as the music wells in the background, and we'll come back in just a moment with Dr. Stephen Tate, author of *Commanding the Army of the Potomac* on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.